This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work by visiting PCAAC.org. Welcome to Gifts and Graces. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Scott Armstrong as he shares how ministry leaders can move from surviving to thriving. Scott is the lead pastor of City Church Eastside in Atlanta, Georgia. This was originally recorded as a seminar delivered at the 2023 General Assembly. Let's listen as Scott helps us provide soul care to our ministry leaders. All right, afternoon, everyone. Uh, Thank you. Uh, First of all, let me say thank you for taking a risk on a speaker that you've never heard of before. Uh, but so I, I know that's not why you're here. You're here for the topic, and that's actually a good thing. But I thought to maybe to warm up the room a little bit, I would show you. Um, this is my family. So mentioned that my wife Kirsten. We've been married for 23 years. I've got three daughters. My the one that's oldest is on the left there, and she's had to covenant in a few weeks. And I've already started spilling tears about the change in our family. Um, it's a big big change seeing your kids leave. I know many of you have already experienced that. That's the first for us. By the way, this is Cinque Terre in Italy. So last summer was our sabbatical. And I'm here to tell you that uh, in the new heavens, new earth, not a lot's going to change for this place. This place is amazing. Get thee to Cinque Terre, Italy, if you get a chance. Um, And so I just want to show you the picture. Again, my sabbatical. And that's sort of apropos in terms of what I'm going to be talking about today. Because in addition to rest and as part of that, I really want to talk about what does it mean to have soul care for us as pastors, as ministry leaders. I know many of you in here are ministry leaders, and that's why you're here at GA to begin with. I thought what I would do is I would show you some research. This is from Lifeway, beginning at the bottom here, where it says 2014. This is, this is reason why I'm here, giving this topic. And so if you look at 2014, they, they surveyed Protestant churches across the land, and here's what they found out. 3,700 churches were closed in 2014, and 3,000 churches were opened, okay? Or, excuse me, 4,000. So a modest increase of 300, probably honestly keeping up with demographic trends, small population growth in the U.S., but look at 2019, and I want to point out two things. It isn't just that we closed a lot more churches, 4,500 churches in 2019. We might say, hey, we expect that. It's a secular post-Christian culture after all, but look at the other thing there. Only 3,000 churches were opened. Now, in February, I was able to hear someone speak about this very trend. And one of the things they noted was that we're seeing increasingly fewer people, paradoxically, going through the seminaries today. Not only that, Robert Kim, who's at Covenant Seminary, he was saying that approximately 30 
MDiv students, and how many of them want to be senior pastors? We said in five, ten. We assumed he was probably saying a low ball number, zero. No one wants to leave the church anymore in the new generation. And so the point in saying that is this. It isn't just that we live in a post-Christian culture. We are losing pastors left and right. And so it is critical, it's pivotal, that we learn how do we care for existing pastors of existing churches, that sort of thing. There's another research from Barna. In 21, they found, uh, they surveyed pastors in the the post-pandemic landscape. Where were they at spiritually and emotionally and so forth? 40%, number of statistics, but the fascinating one for me was 40% of all pastors said that if they could do something different today, leave the ministry, they would in a heartbeat. 40%. And I will tell you, that's not just a number for me. It's something that is personal. In September of 21, I sat down from preaching a sermon at City Church. And for the first time in 16 years since planning that, that church, I didn't want to be there. And, and uh, fortunately for me, uh, there was a care network around me. And over the course of the fall, I was sort of renewed in my spirit for sure. And then I had the sabbatical just a few months later. And so uh, that was a nice setup for me. But think about that. I want to read to you a quote. This is from Tom Nelson, who is the pastor of Christ Community Church. It's an e-free church in the Kansas City area. And he wrote a book called uh, Flourishing Pastor. And this is what he said to pastors. He said, a chilling fear stalks us. A disturbing dissonance confronts us. We too feel the daily challenges pressing in on us as well as the heavy burdens of others who confide in us the deepest secrets, the gnawing doubts, the agonizing disappointments, and the greatest longings of their souls. We are quick to seek the mending of others' wounds and at the same time often slow to pay attention to our own wounds. We know what it is like in the lonely and dark valley of fear, Though we are often seen as bulwarks of faith, we too find ourselves in the blinding fog of doubt. While the currency of our lives is joy, we often battle the storm clouds of discouragement. Not many days go by when we are not confronted with the rugged terrain of our own weaknesses. We can have sound doctrine and not be a sound person. We may be attentive to matters of the church and inattentive to the matters of our own soul. While giving deep theological answers, we could be painfully shallow in our own emotional and relational maturity. We may look impressive on the outside, but may be withering away on the inside. There was a tree next to our house for years, and probably a 150-year-old tree, 130 feet tall, perhaps. And it was a gorgeous tree. I'm here to tell you it was a beautiful tree. One day the city came in and marked it to come down. And I protested. I was like, why in the world would you take down such a beautiful tree? And as they took it down, I found out why the thing was completely rotten on the inside out. It was just who knows how long from falling. And I think for a lot of pastors, especially post-COVID, post-pandemic, this is where we're at. And, and so I want to just impress upon you that, that soul care for pastors is self-care. And when I say that, a lot of people, their first inclination, especially if you're a pastor, you're in the helping arts, as it were, as a minister of the gospel of Jesus. For a lot of us, we hear that and we think, man, that sounds selfish. Listen to what Parker Palmer, he's not a Christian, by the way. Listen to what he said here. Self-care is never a selfish act. It is simply good stewardship of the only gift I have, the gift I was put on earth to offer others. Anytime we can listen to true self and give the care it requires, we do it not only for ourselves, but for the many others whose lives we touch. And if... Uh, 
if common grace isn't uh, what you just need to hear, listen to what Paul himself says in almost the exact same words, but in a different way. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Some of you will know he was speaking to the Ephesian elders, pastors of their own churches. And I want you to note there, because we often go to that second part. Like, uh, we need to care for our flock. But what does he say first? What is the priority? He says, pay careful attention to yourselves. Why? Because Jesus Christ purchased through his own blood the church. This is how critical it is that we care for the leaders of our churches, whether senior pastors or whether assistant pastors. And just how, how difficult is ministry today? I mean, it's true pre-pandemic, certainly post-pandemic, in a very, uh, very difficult, politically disfranchised world here. I love this uh, cartoon. I, did anyone else grow up on the Far Side cartoons? Have any takers there? Yeah. I mean, I, I was raised on a steady diet of Gary Larson. Uh, this is my favorite cartoon today. Bummer of a birthmark, Hal. Target on our chest, right? I mean, does that not describe the pastor today or what? This is a different world that we live in, you know? This is what Paul said. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Ministry is hard. It will crush you. And so... What I want to do is I want to talk about a couple things here. First, I want to talk about why is this such a problem for us? The, the kind of caring for ourselves. We're so good at caring for others. Why is it so hard for us to care for ourselves? So that's the first thing. The second, I want to show you a rhythm from the life of Jesus that maybe you already know about, but perhaps you don't. What would it look like for us to embrace his rhythm? And then finally, I'm going to cast a vision for the church. Uh, for the PCA, but beyond that, for the global church community. I think there are two things are the reasons really for where the church is at today regarding soul care or the lack thereof. One is external pressures. So we know this from, again, the research post-pandemic. Uh, we know that uh, as we're learning more about the human brain, neuroscience, it is fascinating what we're learning. But one of the things that, that they've noted here is that most of us, especially post-pandemic, spend our, uh, spend our lives as we're the life of our brain in one of two places, either hyperarousal or hypoarousal. So those may be terms you're familiar with, but hyperarousal is essentially living in an agitated state. I, a couple, actually, uh, days ago, I wasn't looking for it, but I came across an article uh, that was saying that, that more people than ever before feel like they're living on the edge. In Atlanta, uh, road rage incidences are up almost 40% on the other side of the pandemic. People are constantly living on edge. And I didn't realize until I took my sabbatical this past summer, how much that was true. Much like, uh, like the, uh, the refrigerator in my hotel room here, it's, there's a din of noise in the background all night long, and you get kind of used to it, but it's there, right? We often don't even realize that we're living in a state of hyperarousal, the state of agitation. It wasn't until the second week of my sabbatical, I went on a silent retreat, it was on the first full day, that suddenly I woke up and I felt like a completely different person. And I realized then, uh, for the, the past several months in preparation for my, re- my uh, sabbatical, I was not actually in a state of rest. And it wasn't until I actually was in a place where nothing was required of me as a leader. And I realized, my gosh, this is actually how God designed me to live. And eventually in the new heavens and new earth, this is how I will live all the time. Hyperarousal. But the other one is hypoarousal. And what hypoarousal is, is when you, you're, you're so high, you go low. 
right? And so, uh, you know, we, we, we might uh, seek to numb ourselves emotionally. And this can be, you know, something as, as benign as Netflix binging or something like that. Or it could be a drug use. Uh, you may already know this, but, but marijuana, the way that marijuana works is it numbs you. It takes you down artificially. And so if you're in a state of agitation, it takes you down. That's why marijuana is so powerful and so addictive today, because it's using to numb ourselves from the things that we face. And so whether it's, again, benign or whether it's something that we would say, well, it's out of bounds, it's addictive, it's a drug, regardless, alcohol, whatever it might be, there's so many different ways for us to go into a hyperarousal, to numb our emotions, because we can't stand the state of affairs in our brains and in our lives here. Secondly, kind of related to that, I think is hostility that we experience in a post-Christian land like our own. In the city of Atlanta, one of the things that happens for me, I've been pastoring there for 18 years, uh, occasionally someone will come up to me. I live in a neighborhood where virtually everyone are atheist or agnostic or different spiritualities, and they will say, what do you do for a living? And I kid you not, I will say, I kill conversations for a living. And, um, and so they say, oh, come on, man, uh, what do you do for a living? I'll say, I'm a pastor, and I'm telling you, 90% of the time that works. Uh, not that I'm looking for that, but I'm here to tell you, that's what happens right there. We, we know that, and you don't have to live in a city environment. Increasingly, the whole country, culturally, uh, is not a place where people revel in the fact that you're a pastor. I don't need to tell you that. You already know that. It's increasingly difficult. And it's not getting, of course, any easier. But there's a third thing regarding external pressures, and that is, uh, let's call it achievement expectations. Now, for us who are are pastors, assistant or senior pastors, we're on a staff somewhere, uh, that can be in the form of our sessions. There could be expectations of, like, uh, how how powerful you can preach, what the size of your church should be, right? Right? You know, they're the pressures that are placed upon us that aren't necessarily intended to be placed upon us in a, in a mean-spirited way. Of course not. But we feel that pressure, and we respond accordingly. But also then related to that internal pressures. A couple things I want to say there. One is what I call the inner critic. Now, if you are a pastor, again, why, in part, the reason why you want to be a pastor is you want to see changed lives. God has given us that mission, the Great Commission, in fact. But, but on the kind of the dark side of that, and sometimes we can be our worst critics. I, I will sometimes tell people, say, you can criticize me all you want, but I'm already doing a pretty good job myself. You know? You know what I'm talking about? And so the inner critic has a power in our lives and leads to a temptation I'm going to mention here in a second. I think self-worth is another issue for us. A lot of people uh, in a moment of honesty in a, in a counseling relationship as uh, with a therapist will Maybe some of you would say this, say, I, I, um, I, sometimes I struggle to, to know, um, am I worth it? Do I have what it takes? I mean, when you hear the attaboys from someone in your congregation through your sermons or, or through your, your counseling ministry as a pastor, it's powerful, almost as powerful as any drug. And then the last thing I think in terms of an internal pressure is achievement expectations, not the outside ones this time, but what we expect of ourselves. What do we expect as we preach? What do we expect as we counsel? What do we expect in terms of the sizes of our churches and so forth, right? And so let me give you now, to conclude this first portion here, um, what I think are a a couple temptations. Number one is is self-glory. There's been a lot of talk, and books have been written. A friend of mine named Chuck DeGroote recently wrote a book on it about narcissism 
And part of, the, part of what narcissism is about is the pursuit of self-glory. And some would say, and I'm not here to argue one way or the other, some would say, though, that, that the helping ministries, in particular being a pastor, in a position of power and influence, tends to attract narcissists. Now, whether that's true or not, that certainly is what has been proclaimed in the last several years in book form and in uh, other communications. But what I want to suggest to you is that that, is a, that can be a true temptation for some of us. Because, again, we're not receiving glory elsewhere. And so we can find it on our own through the places of power and influence. So the last thing I want to say here about in terms of a temptation is that I think we can be tempted to believe that biblical, excuse me, biblical success, meaning the success of however we would define that according to what the scriptures say about what the church should be, is ultimately up to us. A very denial of the gospel itself, right? And so I think this is actually the reason why two things happen. Either we experience moral failure, Right? And, and we have seen this even in our own denomination. Forget about the other denominations. We know firsthand, and in some ways it's a good thing. I don't think that there's any more uh, moral failure than there's ever been in the past. I just think because of social media, we know a lot more about it today. And then secondly, burnout. And forget about moral failure. Like We're just trying our hardest. And we find ourselves one day saying, I don't want to be here anymore. I can't tell you how many friends over the years I've, I've watched, especially post-COVID, walk away. Some stats would say that majority of pastors who begin in ministry don't finish there. This is why, again, this is so critical. Now, some of you are saying, man, I'm depressed listening to you, Scott, for the last 15 minutes. So I'm about to uh, turn, the, turn the tables here. We're going to go to some, uh, not optimism, we're going to go to hope and encouragement. So what I want to do now is I want to show you from the scriptures the, the, the rhythm of Jesus that I think helps us respond to the crises and the trauma that we have engaged in as pastors in our own lives, in our own churches. I think all of us in here would say in a nutshell that uh, we live in a busy and an intense time to be a pastor. But I think most of us would, in a moment of honesty, would say Jesus was no less busy. Jesus was no In fact, if anything, he experienced more intensity of ministry than we ever will, right? And yet he never burns out. Why? I want to uh, read you a quote real quickly from C.S. Lewis. One of my favorite quotes by him. This is pre-popular, so some of you have heard this. Put first things first and we get second things thrown in. Put second things first and we lose both first and second things. What's he saying there? He's saying that when we lose our priorities as leaders, we lose it all. If, if we pursue God for God... Like for me, when I went away on my sabbatical in this silent retreat with my spiritual director, he said, he was giving me some Ignatian exercises to do in the scriptures. And he said, I just want you to just to read and, and start journaling. And I realized then that virtually every single time I went to scripture, I went to it to get something out of it from the next sermon. You feel me on that, guys? Uh, for somebody, like, I mean, I, I, I can't turn my brain off when I see scripture like that, and then I was given permission to turn it off and just to be alone with God, God for God. And I realized that I was pursuing the scriptures and no wonder I felt joyless. And so I think that's what Lewis is saying. When we say, I want God for God, I want to forget about uh, my role, the hats that I wear here. I just want God for God. I want you for you, Lord. Uh, We get the joy. We get the fruitfulness in a way that that uh, nothing else can satisfy. And so here's what I want to do. I want to show you from Mark chapter 1. 
a rhythm that Jesus does. Now, if, if I could um, ask for a new Bible, uh, I wouldn't just say the red letter edition. I would want three things, not just the words of Jesus, but the works and the ways of Jesus here. So if, if you're an entrepreneur and you want to create your own uh, uh, Bible, uh, well, not create the Bible, but you know what I mean, uh, I will be your number one evangelist. This is what I'm looking for. And so the, the red there is what Jesus said in the passage. The green is the works of Jesus, his miracles and healings and so forth, but also the ways of Jesus. I think the last one there is critical for us. And yet we miss it because it's not as easy to see. And once you see it, you can't unsee it here. So here's what I want to do. I want to read to you verses 29 through 39. I'm going to show you something. Now, I want to give proper credit here. A friend of mine, Trevor Hudson, who's a Methodist pastor in South Africa, he first turned me on to see some of these things, and I began to work with and develop it further. But I want to just read to you now. Uh, So Jesus has just publicly launched his ministry. Some of you know this, of course. And this is what it says beginning in verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and they said to him, everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, let's go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. All right. I want to show you a graphic now. And I want to show you something that for me was pivotal. Inflection point, it changed um, how I think about ministry in my own life, self-care. I call this the wave. And so what I'm showing you here is uh, what's called input and output. Input is the things that we receive spiritually, and then the output is the ministry that we do. And so what I call the wave is this. I'm, I'm not a physics major, and so don't shoot me if some of you are, but, but you know, uh, I, th- I, don't, I forget what the term is for the, the median point, but the, the distance between the, the crest of a wave and the trough of a wave is equal to each other. So when that wave comes on the lake and the ocean, the backside of the trough is uh, supposedly equal to the median here. And so we're constantly searching for stasis, and so was Jesus. So here's what I want to show you. Where does verse 29 begin? It says he was in the synagogue. We often forget about this, but Jesus, in addition to teaching, worshiped as well, right? And if you go even further back, there's some other stuff, but I don't have time to get into that. But he was in a place of of input where he's worshiping, where he's enjoying his father. We know this. And then what happens immediately after that? Peter's mother-in-law, she's healed. And then evidently word gets around to the village and everyone and their mother is coming out to be healed, right? And so you can only imagine how deep into the evening that he must have been doing his ministry, the miracles and the healings and so forth. And then what does it say beginning in verse 35? This is beginning verse 35, he got away. So for rest, he went into the desolate place, which you know, wilderness is a huge theme in the gospel of Mark. And so what what you see here is this wave, what I'm saying here is it just as it's true in physics, it's also true spiritually. Written into the very fabric of the cosmos of the universe, God has given us a design for how we do ministry and for how we rest. Here's what I want you to hear in this. If you hear nothing else, please hear this. I think as pastors, the intensity of our rest 
should absolutely correlate and reflect and be balanced with the intensity of our ministry. I don't think we do that. I think very few of us know how to do that. And, and it, you know, these are words where man, with everything flying at you as a pastor, right? you're like, how do I have time? But I'm here to tell you, Jesus himself shows this in the wave. He shows this in his own life and his ways that he will take time out. Now, granted, he is interrupted by Peter and company. More on that in a second. But we see that he is intending to live according to God's design in such a way. What happens then when we do that? Or when, what happens when he does that? Let me show you this other graphic. The cycle of grace, I call it. So remember the input and output terms, right? There are two components of both. The first one is acceptance. What does that mean? Jesus knew who he was. How do we know that? Verse 11. Remember his baptism. What is he right before the scene? What do we hear? He says this, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus was grounded. Jesus knew who he was and he had the the favor of the father and he savored the favor of the father. You see, he delights as the father delights. So Jesus delights in that. Abide in me, John 15 here. And so Jesus begins his ministry, he continues his ministry with a groundingness, as we might say. He knew who he was and led the second thing there, sustenance. Now, he was sustained in prayer. He was sustained with the Father spiritually, but it wasn't just that. Jesus was sustained by those he kept company with horizontally as well. In other places we know, Jesus was called a drunkard and a glutton. The man liked to party. Like he knew how to do that well, right? He turns the water to wine and it's not just any wine. It's the best wine, remember, from John chapter two there. And so the the point being this, Jesus was sustained not just with the father, but also horizontally. And I'll come back to that and the importance of that here in a second, but then it leads to the output. Thirdly, there is significance. What is that? It means to know your gravitas. It means to know the weight that you have in the world. Now, where does that begin? It begins with acceptance. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. That's where it begins. But for Jesus, that's where it begins. You are my beloved son. And then he knows, right? What do we see there? Right, just a few verses before this, Jesus is preaching in the synagogue. And what did the people say? We've never heard anyone teach like this. He has authority that we've never seen before. He has significance, gravitas. What do we see in John's gospel? The I am statements. Like he, the gravitas of knowing who he was and the work that God the Father had given him on mission. And leads to the last thing there, following the arrows there, fruitfulness. So this is moving from affirmation to the actualization, the actual work of the ministry. The reason why I put this up here, the reason why I think that's so important is I think for a lot of us, myself included at times, we reverse that process of the cycle of works. And here's how that works. Just put it in reverse. I do great things for God. I do great ministry. I preach well. I counsel well. Well, man, I have, I have weight in the world. Right? I, I, have, I have gravitas in the world. And that's going to sustain me. And if that sustains me, God is pleased with me. That's the cycle of works. And that's the recipe for burnout. I want you to see how Jesus responds Remember what I said about temptation, those pressures, external and internal. How does Jesus respond? Because Jesus is also tempted. Remember, Hebrews tells us he's tempted in every single way that we have been tempted, yet without sin. So Jesus was tempted here. I want to show you something, beginning verse 30, going back to verses 36 and 37. Listen to what it says there. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him, and they said to him, everyone's looking for you. 
Now, what is, it, what is it the reference to? It's back to the village, all the ministry that he's done. Now, remember, just a few verses before this, Mark tells us Jesus is out in the desert and where he's tempted. And of course, Matthew 4 gives us more uh, uh, words on how the temptation was. One of the temptations was, man, make your name great. Be somebody in the world. You don't have to go to the cross, you say. And so in the very mouth, mouths of the disciples who rudely come and take away his quiet time, his rest and at that, right? What do they say? Everyone's looking for you. You're blowing up on Twitter, Jesus. This is getting big and you've just started here. What a powerful temptation for us. What a powerful temptation when we, when we get the attaboys right, from our ministry that we do. It's in our sermons, it's in our counseling, and we feast upon those words and we hold on to those words, not the words of the Father, but the words that come and go among the sheep based upon how they're doing and how they feel about us. You say, Jesus was grounded in the desolate place, a place of temptation, and a completely different response. And here's where the penny dropped for me. It's in verse 38. I'll read that to you again. So after the temptation, and he said to them, let's go on to the next town, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Scott, why is it so important? When was the last time someone told you that Jesus left ministry undone. You see, that's what Jesus did. There was great ministry still in that village. This is why the disciples say, you got to continue. You got to go back. But what does Jesus do? Remember, he is so grounded with the Father. He knows who he is. He knows his calling. He knows it's in the second part there. That I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. He will not be taken off his rhythm. He will not be taken off the cycle of grace, the wave in his life. He knows. And so, so here's in part what I want to tell you today. You should be given permission to leave ministry undone because Jesus did as well. This is why it's so critical. And so we are dying on the vine or because we're not on the vine. Maybe it's a better way to put it. And we're burning out because all around us, people are saying, there's so much more for you to do, pastor. There's so much more for you to do, ministry leader. Like that. There's so many more opportunities. Man, think about what could happen if we did this, if we did that. And you are dying because you haven't been away in a desolate place. The wilderness is also a place of curse and temptation, yes, but it is also a place of blessing, according to Jesus, according to the rhythm that he's developed to get away. We know this as well. I was just reading an article about this a couple of days ago. Moral failure is most likely when we're most exhausted. That probably seems like common sense, but think about the way, the rhythm here. If we take ourselves out of the rhythm of Jesus where we're not equaling in intensity our rest in order to care for ourselves, and making that equal here to the intensity of ministry, no wonder we find ourselves in a place where things that may not have the power of temptation in a place of strength, strength to strength, man, it can end us just like that. Or it leaves us in a place of burnout, as I, as I mentioned as well. So, with that in mind, the rhythm of Jesus. Here's where I want to end, and then I want to take uh, some questions. I want to uh, position this as a vision, a vision for not only our denomination, but for a vision for the church, for us personally as well. I want to give you two words that are part of the vision here. Number one, integration. The word integration. What I mean by that is to match the interior life 
an interior call with their external life. Well, Scott, what do you mean by that exactly? I think that in our tradition, the Presbyterian tradition, we put such an emphasis on, on cognitive learning and, and the expressions therein, especially the external call and achievements, I think quite honestly, that, um, that sometimes we, we probably could perhaps pay better attention to some of the other traditions. Theologically, uh, maybe not so much, but I, I will tell you this much, that we could learn so much from the Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox traditions and similar ones about places of interior rest, as they call it. Even learning from the mystics and things like that, believe it or not. And so part of what I want to suggest is that we have a gap, naturally, because of the, the power and the intensity and, the, and the, uh, the difficulty of ministry between our soul and our roles. And so part of my vision is to say, how do we minimize that gap? This side of heaven won't be fully gone away, but how do we minimize that gap in the way that Jesus, who never burns out, is able to, to practice the wave, as I call it here? How do we do more of that? How do we minimize that? And here's the second word. This is where I close, right? It's feasting. It's learning how to feast. Now, I don't know what you hear, Pastor, when you, when you hear that, but when I hear that, I hear joy. And, and I don't want to just survive. I want to thrive. Because I'll tell you this much, if we thrive as pastors, guess what happens to our churches? They thrive. As it goes for the pastor, so goes the church more often than not. And so I want to say this to some of you who are ruling elders. I want to speak to you for a second. I want to to suggest this to you. I would like to ask you to make the very first dollar of your ministry go to your pastor. You're saying, hold on a second. That's not normally how I think about the ministry and where we spend our money. Are you saying take out a note on the next Lexus to come on the market or something like that? Not at all. I mean that it's a priority, not in terms of amount necessarily, but in terms of priority. What that communicates to the pastor, whether it's a senior pastor, assistant pastor, someone else on your staff, what it communicates is this. We care about you. There's some other research that shows that there's a yawning gap right now between where pastors say they are emotionally and spiritually and where the session the elders believe their pastor is. It is remarkable. Most session members believe their pastors are doing much better emotionally, spiritually, and so forth than they actually are recording in surveys and research. And so part of what I want to suggest to you is that that if the priority of the first dollar is spent on your pastor, you're saying, look, we want to maybe even mandate that you begin to take more care. Make sure there's sabbaticals written into into the policies of your church, making sure that there's money and time for them to not just go on vacation, but retreat, spiritual retreat. That there's a rhythm that I'm going to mention here in a second that they're uh, prioritizing in their life as pastors. And I promise you this much. If you were to prioritize the very first dollar that you spend as a church, I believe you will see a change for your pastor. And things that uh, perhaps you're not even aware of or perhaps you're dreaming of. And so lastly, here's what I conclude. I call it the so what. When I, when I preach, I'll, sometimes I'll say that to the congregation. Well, you're asking the question, so what? Like, it's great theology, but what does that mean for my life? So I want to say this to you as a pastor. Three things. Number one, pursue community at all cost. We as pastors are incredibly good about being lone rangers. We can be aloof. Uh, We can be independent operators. But what you see in the life of Jesus isn't just his vertical relationship, it's his horizontal relationships. The community that he developed being sustained. Man, I know that some of you probably are doing that quite well. But what would happen if as pastors we were in places where where other pastors who understand us, who can empathize with us the way that, that other people in the church, including our very elders, perhaps may not be able to do. 
Okay. What would happen if we had a safe place, as it were? Right. Uh, for me, several years ago, I, I got involved with a cohort of pastors, not necessarily uh, PCA pastors, though one of them is, uh, but six of us around the country. We get together a, a, couple, a couple times a year. In fact, just literally this morning when I was texting, hey, about our next get-together, uh, where's that going to take place and that sort of thing like that. I, can, I will tell you that when I went through my depression 18 months ago, it was critical to be able to talk with them about, man, this is what I'm going through. And they're like, yeah, man, we know it. We feel it. We know exactly where you're at. It's powerful just to hear someone say, you too. Someone, I think it was C.S. Lewis, who said, the definition of friendship is someone responding, you too. I've been there, that sort of thing like that. And so it's to act number two, rule of life. If you don't have a rhythm of life, as it's been called, St. Benedict was one in the 6th century. He created this. It's the idea that you have uh, both a, uh, a weekly or, excuse me, a daily, a weekly, monthly, and an annual rhythm in your life. Let me tell you why that's so important. Remember what I said about Jesus saying, everyone's looking for you, or his disciples saying that. And he said, no, we've got to keep going on. People will eat up your time if you let them. And if you are a people pleaser by nature, you know this firsthand. Man, it is hard to pass up on that. It's hard to disappoint people. But when you have a rhythm of life where you have written into your schedule, say, these are the blocks of time that I have to do pastoral counseling. These are the blocks of time I have to prepare my sermon, those sorts of things. But this is my time. This is my day where I focus solely on myself. Now, are there emergencies that happen? Absolutely. And I'm not referring to those things. But I'm referring to those people who call you up or who email you and say, hey, man, do you have time? You're like, uh, well, no, I'm about to head up. Well, man, I can't meet then. Can you meet now? And you're like, I don't want to disappoint them, right? And here's what I'm here to tell you. Jesus disappointed people. Jesus said, leave it alone, leave them alone. If you have to disappoint them for the sake of your soul, for the sake of caring for yourself, for if you do not care for yourself, what good will you be for the church? That's what Paul says, Acts 20, 28. And so it's to create a rhythm life. And lastly here, it's to learn how to retreat. I'm not talking about vacation. I'm not talking about uh, quiet times in the morning. I'm talking about actually going to the wilderness, to the desolate place, wherever that is. Having a spiritual director in your life, having another pastor who, who, who doesn't have a, a position of leadership over you, but simply loves you and cares for you. Maybe it's a therapeutic relationship, but regardless, is saying, man, I need someone else to speak into my life where the pressure's off. And I'm saying, man, if you have that written as your protocols, you retreat rhythmically, quarterly, whatever it might be. Like that is a game changer in the heat and the intensity of ministry. Dallas Willard put it this way regarding uh, this rhythm of life. He said, it's spire. Some of you have heard this before, S-P-I-R-E. It's spiritual. Well, that makes sense. It's physical. It's investing in your own body. Do you not know yourselves that you yourselves are God's temple? and that God's spirit lives in you. Caring for ourselves physically delights the heart of the Father. Intellectually, relationally, this is the community developing that. And then finally, emotionally. I mean, much of, in fact, what I've been sharing today is really about emotional health. And so I just had this vision. I began to do some work here uh, a couple years ago, beginning to model and do some things with pastors in the Atlanta area that I lead. And, uh, and so I imagined, what would it look like for us to actually practice feasting? And here's what I'm here to tell you. It works, and it brings joy all right, to have these encounters like that. And so um, I commend that to you today.
You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.